The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Good evening, guys. How are we doing? Doing good. All right, let's pray real quick and then we're going to get started. I'm Sam, by the way. Uh, if we've got some new people, just want to welcome you guys. Um, welcome to the Cascade Music Suite, which is where we hang out on Wednesday nights, right? Um, yeah, anyways, uh, let's pray and we'll, we'll get right to work. God, so thankful tonight for these guys that have come out, have given of their night to come and to be with the living stones of your temple. God, I'm thankful for the opportunity to get to talk about what we get to talk about tonight. Lord, I pray that as we discuss the importance of truth, the importance of your word and your scriptures, by looking at the scriptures, God, that you, Holy Spirit, would be present. And would you breathe on this message, God? Would you make it come alive? God, I'm in desperate need of you. Uh, Lord, we're all in desperate need of you to come in and to, to, to penetrate, even as Mitch prayed, our hearts that are hard. God, we're so good at shutting you out of our hearts, shutting you out of our minds. God, we need you to cut deep with your word tonight, to convict, to bring peace, to bring joy, maybe. Whatever it may be, Lord, we're ready, and we look to you, God. Uh, please speak. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So in uh, the book of Luke, chapter 24, you don't have to go there, but uh, you should actually go there. 24. Uh, let's do that. Luke 24. <laughs> we find a story of uh, two guys walking down a road, more than likely a uh, dusty, pothole, rut-ridden road on their way to a place called Emmaus. You guys may have heard this story. Uh, as these two men are walking down the road, the conversation uh, is intense. It's one of those conversations that you don't really have to think too hard about what to talk about with the person you're with because you are both already thinking about the same thing. Uh, you both already have one thing on your mind, and so you just need to talk about it. You just need to get it out there, just to figure it out. It's the same thing that everyone else in Jerusalem has been talking about. It's the buzz, if you will. It's the talk of the town. Everyone has the same conversation in their homes, at their tables, at their workplaces and on the roads. And that conversation is this, who was Jesus? See, three years before this conversation, this carpenter from Nazareth, uh, the Galilee, this really this poor area, this seemingly nobody emerged, exploded out into the scene of Israel, healing people, raising people from the dead, doing miraculous, recruiting disciples, drawing crowds in the thousands, irritating to no end the Pharisees and the religious leaders, catching the attention of King Herod even and Pilate and all of these different people of great authority and power and prestige. This Jesus just absolutely exploded onto the scene. And of course, the Jews thought, this is it right? This is the Messiah. This is the one we've been waiting for. This is the one that's going to come and free us from the tyranny and the grip of Rome that has for so long kept us from worshiping in the way that we want, having to pay taxes to Herod and all of these, uh, to, 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 to Rome and to Caesar and all of these things. They're expecting this Jesus to come onto the scene and just free Israel, but yet something happens, Within days of him being in Jerusalem, the chief priests and their guards and the Romans come at night and arrest Jesus. And they take him to be tried illegally in the middle of the night. And within hours, he is crucified, killed, murdered illegally. What happened? <laughs> this talk would be all over the town. What happened? This was supposed to be the Messiah to free us from Rome. And now he's dead. What do we do now? So these two men are walking down this road to Emmaus. You guys know the story. They're having a conversation about this, kicking it back and forth. It's starting to get intense. They don't really uh, 
have any answers, but they need to talk about it because it's what's going on. And as they're talking, a third person sort of emerges into the scene almost out of nowhere. They don't recognize this third person. He just seems to be a stranger, but nonetheless, he walks right up to them and says, what are you guys talking about? And one of the men turns to him and says, are you kidding me? Are you the only one in Jerusalem that hasn't heard the news of what has been going on? That this Jewish man that we thought would, would rule and reign and make Israel great again has been murdered? And to make it even more intense, some women in our group went to the tomb to anoint the body and the body was gone? We couldn't find him and we went to find him and he was not there? We don't know what to do. We don't know what to think. So if you have your Bibles, Luke 24, picking it up in, uh, let's see here, picking it up in verse 24. They said, some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. And then this third man in verse 25, this stranger said to them, oh foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer those things, enter into his glory? And, the, and beginning with Moses all the way through the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So this third person, if you haven't guessed yet, is none other than the resurrected Jesus with holes in his hands, had come out of the grave and now is walking with these two men. They don't recognize him. They don't know who he is, inserts himself into this conversation. And then as they explain what's going on, he responds by saying, oh, foolish Oh, foolish ones, don't you know that the scriptures all pointed forward to the fact that the Messiah would have to die? And you missed it completely, right? So as they're walking, Jesus sort of pretends like he's going to keep going. And they say, well, wait a minute, there's something different about this guy. They don't know who he is yet, but let's invite him to dinner. So they say, let's go have dinner. So they invite him in with the rest of the disciples in this, this group, and they share a last supper, just like they did before Christ died, and he breaks the bread, and he blesses the wine. Verse 28, so they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us, for it is towards evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them, and when he was at the table, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them, and their eyes were opened. And in that instant, their hearts jump out of their chest because they realize they're not sitting with a stranger, they're sitting with Jesus, just like they did days prior in the upper room before he went to the cross to die. Listen to what they say. Their eyes were opened, they recognized him, and he vanished instantly from their sight, gone. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road and while he opened to us the scriptures? This is an amazing story. Their hearts burned. Their hearts burned as Jesus, the word himself, the truth himself, explained the word itself. As Jesus, the truth, explained the truth. You see, he took them through the scriptures from beginning all the way up to present and showed them from Exodus and the law and Moses through the prophets and all the way up how everything in the scriptures was pointing to one singular event, and that was the cross of Christ. And as he spoke from the scriptures, their hearts burned within them. There is absolutely nothing like the scriptures that we hold in our hands, guys. There is absolutely nothing like it. It contains power that you cannot believe. Millions and millions, including these two, have been affected and changed and transformed by the power of God's word, amen? 
when we understand that this book is about Jesus and what he did for us and who he is, it unlocks power like you would not believe to transform our lives. And so tonight, that's what we're gonna talk about. We're in the Spiritual Discipline series. We introed it last week, just talking, sort of setting a groundwork for what we're going to do in the series and how we're going to approach it. We talked about the discipline of grace, if you guys remember that, that it takes a discipline to believe in grace. And this week, we're going to look at the scriptures. We're going to look at the discipline of Bible study or Bible intake, Bible reading. So what I want to do with you guys, just to give you kind of a roadmap, is first, I want to spend a little bit of time talking about why. Why do we read the scriptures? Okay? Now, that might seem kind of obvious if you guys have been around church for a while. Well, we read the Bible because that's what we do. It's God's word. You just read it, right? But there's a little more complexity to that. So I want to dive into that. I want to ask the question, why? Why do we read the scriptures? And then, sort of for the, the, the second half, I want to get into some real practicals of how to be spiritually disciplined in the reading of the scriptures. Does that make sense? So we'll start off with the why. We'll go into the how. Um, let's get started. So why we should read the Bible? We're going to do three answers to that question, okay? So if you're a note taker, uh, go ahead and jot this down. Number one, why read the Bible? Question mark, question mark. Because, number one, truth matters. Truth matters, okay? Let me explain what I mean by that and why that's important. We live in a culture that has been overtaken by something called relativism, okay? What relativism basically means is that there is no way of knowing absolute truth. Therefore, truth must not exist, okay? Relativism basically says that whatever is true for you is true for you, and whatever is true for me is true for me. So if you want to believe in Allah and make that your life goal, that's okay. Just believe in it with all your heart. And I can believe in Christianity and we can coexist and there is no truth anyway. So it's all about just being a good person and believing in something. And does that sound familiar a little bit? This is what we're saturated in in our culture. Relif relativism. Nothing can be for sure. So just believe whatever you want. Now, there's problems with that. The problem with that is, first of all, that you always land back at the question, is there truth? But a lot of conversations with non-believers, and every single time, we always circle back around to this one question and then the follow-up, and that is, is there truth? Can we know for sure that something is right? And if there is truth, then what is it? Right? Because this person over here can say, well, I believe that I get to heaven by these means. And then this person over here can say, well, I believe I get to heaven by those means. So who are you to tell me that my way is wrong, and who are you to tell me that my way is wrong, right? Who decides? So the question always comes back to this. Is there truth? If there is not truth, then relativism is king. Believe whatever you want. Do whatever you want. Our culture loves rel relativism, which is hard to say, because... It allows you to decide for yourself how you live your life, what you believe, what you do, how you spend your money, how you spend your day, how you treat your wife, how you do all of those things. It allows you to determine for yourself why you exist and what your purpose is. Because if there is no truth, then I can essentially do whatever I believe. But here's the problem, okay? There is truth. Amen? There is truth. Look at the universe in which we live in. Our universe is constructed on truths. I was thinking about this earlier. What would be a good illustration? My shirt has a specific amount of stitches in it. Now, I didn't count those, okay, because I don't have that much time on my hands. But my shirt is a specific amount of stitches in it. Now, you can tell me your shirt has 500,000 stitches, and I can tell you, no, my shirt has 600,000 stitches. It doesn't really matter what you say. It doesn't really matter what I say. The reality is, is that my shirt, this physical object that was created, has a specific number of stitches. There is a truth attached to that. Okay, our universe is built off of truths. The fact that we can exist in this planet is because our planet 
rotates at a perfect speed, at a perfect distance from the sun, and all of those are truths. There is a specific amount of cells that make up a body, and it doesn't matter what I think it is or what you think it is, there is a truth to that amount. Does that make sense? Everything is based off of truth. There has to be truth, and it doesn't matter what you think or what I think. There is truth. So here's an example. I can believe that I'm a bird, okay? I can. I can say, look, I am a bird. I don't care what you say, okay? I'm believing in myself, and myself is telling me that I am a bird. And then I climb up 10, you know, you know where this is going, right? I climb up 10 stories and jump, and it does not matter how much I believe that I am a bird. The truth is, I am not a bird, and I am going to splat at the bottom of that building. Does that make sense? Our culture is obsessed with belief and faith, but it doesn't really matter how much belief and faith you have. It matters what you believe in. It matters how much faith you have in the right thing. You can believe in anything you want, but that doesn't make it the right thing to believe in. The two are inseparable. We cannot have faith without truth. You cannot have faith without truth. You can put your faith in anything, but if you do not understand what the faith, your faith is in, that's what matters, and that's Christianity. Christianity is not simply believing in something. Christianity is believing in someone. Amen? It's not just believing Okay, somehow Christianity gets swooped into and muddled with all of these other religions and all this feel-goodism and all this Oprah Winfrey, this and that. Okay, but Christianity is not just believing, just having good faith. You can believe all you want. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that Satan and the demons believe that God is real. Okay, but they do not place their faith and their trust in him. So it matters. Truth matters, and for Christians, especially truth matters, because if we do not know what we believe in, our belief is for nothing. Here's an example. Paul the apostle was not lacking in faith before he had his conversion. Did you know that? In fact, it says, he says personally, that he was the most zealous of all Pharisees, that he, I mean, he literally even killed Christians just for his faith. I mean, he had faith in in Judaism, and the God of Israel, and he pursued that faith. But what was the problem? He had his faith in the wrong thing. So Jesus encountered Paul, right? I mean, literally, physically encountered Paul and said, why are you killing my people? Stop. Blinded him for three days. What happened, though, wasn't that Paul all all of a sudden had faith. It's that Paul had faith in the right thing. What defines us as Christians is not simply believing, it's believing in truth. And truth matters, guys. It absolutely matters. We do not do this just to feel good about ourselves. We do not follow Christ and live our lives for Christ just so that we can be part of a social club. We do this because we believe it, amen? I mean, I wouldn't be here if I didn't believe this is true. Paul said, if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, we wasted our lives. It doesn't just matter that we're here. It doesn't just matter that we believe. It matters what we believe in. And it's not anything but a person, okay? So truth matters. Augustine said this, where I, f- where I found, I'm sorry, let me start over. Martin Luther, rewind, said this, peace if possible, but truth at all costs. Peace if possible, but truth at all costs. We do not compromise on truth. It is so important. This seems obvious, but you guys have to understand that this is under attack. Like you would not believe by our culture. And they are chopping at the very roots. And the roots go deeper than just whether or not this was written two, three, four hundred years ago, okay? The roots of this is whether or not there is even truth to be had. They are chopping at the roots of the scripture by going all the way back to saying, well, we don't even know if there is such a thing as truth. And they're attacking the scriptures that way. So if we cannot defend, firstly, that there is truth, and secondly, that this is it, we have nothing to stand on. 
our whole life, our whole religion, our whole time with God, our relationship with God is for nothing, and they are attacking truth. We have to understand that. And for the Christian, the Bible is that source of truth, which if you really think about it is insane. If you really think about it. I mean, people think we're crazy. You're staking your entire life on a book, right? But this is not just a book. It looks like one. It has pages. It has chapters. It has verses. It has a cover, right? It has stories like, like any other book. But this, as God declares, is a living word sharper than any two-edged sword that's able to cut to the deepest parts of the hearts, right? This is a book that transforms. And for the Christian, this is that source of truth. We must have some sort of exterior source saying this is the truth and that for us is the scriptures. But it's deeper than that. See, God is a God who communicates, right? He's a God who communicates. That's what I love about our God. Some people believe in gods that sort of spun the world into existence and then took off in their UFO or whatever and just kind of left us here to evolve, right? They dropped off some primordial soup and here we are. Okay, that's not our God. Our God is a God who communicates and he did so primarily through the language of a person and that person is Jesus Christ. What is more relatable than another human being? God communicated himself through Jesus Christ. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, correct? The language of God is Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, and the scriptures are not powerful primarily because this book holds some mystical power, okay? It's not like Islam where you have to read it in the, the foreign, or in the actual language and if you change any little thing, all of a sudden it changes it. The power in this book lies in who it's about. It's about Jesus. And Jesus is the language of God. And the power in this book lies because we believe that God breathed it, that the Holy Spirit has been involved in every ounce of the truth that has been written down in this book from Genesis to Revelation. We believe that. It's foundational to what we believe. We have to have some source of truth. What better source of truth than the one who created us, right? What better source of truth than the one who created us? It's absolutely imperative. Augustine said, where I found truth, there found I my God, who is the truth itself. Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life has this mysterious connection with the Bible, the logos. In John, it says, in the beginning was the what? The word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Jesus is somehow, in a complex way, the truth, the image, the language of God, and is somehow connected to this eternal and powerful and spiritual book that transforms lives. I don't know how it works, but I've experienced it. I've experienced the life-changing power of God's word. John 5, 39, Jesus says to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. The whole point of this is Jesus. It's the whole point. So number one, truth matters. Number two, why we read the Bible and this might seem like review, but this is so important. Number two, we read the Bible because our minds are fallen. Our minds are fallen. Our minds do not naturally discern the truth of God. Okay, if we can agree that truth is all that matters, it doesn't matter how you believe, it matters what you believe in, right? If we can believe that truth is what matters you have to understand, Christian, that the Bible tells you you cannot discern that truth in your natural mind. It is not in your fallen and sinful and carnal or my fallen and sinful and carnal mind to be able to comprehend and understand who God is. Okay, it needs to be conformed. Romans 12, 2, you guys know it. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. By the renewal of your, what? Your minds. That by testing, 
you may discern what is the will of God, what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God, that by the transformation of our mind, we would be able to think as God thinks, to be able to feel as God feels. I don't naturally think like God thinks. I naturally think the opposite. I don't naturally have God's intentions and ways set in my mind. Those need to be implanted. Now, when you get saved, I said this last week, when you get saved, you get a new heart. You get new desires. But the way that you think is all wrong. It is all wrong. And if it is not conformed daily, it it will continue to be carnal and continue to be wrong. Here's why this is important, okay? It's important because it's completely the opposite of what our culture tells us. Our culture tells us that we look within ourselves to find what is true, right? It's sort of a spinoff of Eastern religion. We've kind of made our own weird, uh, watered-down 1% version of Eastern religion, and that is that you look within. You meditate. You find your inner good, okay? So you believe in yourself, you dig down deep, and you find out what's your passions, and who are you, and what are you designed to do, and what's your purpose. You find all that in your heart, right? The Bible says completely the opposite. You don't look in your heart. Your heart is completely wicked. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. God wants to import his will into your mind through the scriptures, Because your mind is not naturally wired. Eastern religion says look within. The scriptures, the gospel says, don't look within. (laughs) Look outside. Look without. Look to God to change your mind because that's the only way that we're going to think the way that he thinks. And here's something interesting. We tend also to be very inbred, if I can use that term, in the way we take in information. Listen, we live, we live in this crazy generation. You guys know this because you all have smartphones in your pocket, okay? We live in this crazy def, uh, generation where we have more access to more information than any generation on the face of the planet. You understand that? I mean, the printing press wasn't even invented but a few hundred years ago. And now we have access to basically unlimited information in our pockets. It's insane, right? We have more access to truth than we ever have before, but guess what? We have more access to lies than we ever had before. We have more access to scripture and means of learning the scripture and learning theology, and we have more means of getting it wrong, okay? But here's the interesting thing about that. I was watching the PBS NewsHour the other day just trying to catch up on what's going on in the world, and uh, this is just what they said, so don't get mad at me if you like these people or whatever. Uh, but they were talking about politics. It's Politics Monday or whatever. And uh, they're, they're talking about the two leading candidates in the two parties. And, and they had these two gals on that were, were sort of uh, dialoguing about politics right now. You know, it's an election year, all this stuff. And uh, the question on the table was, how is it possible that Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton are the front runners when all of this information is out there exposing them in all these areas? Like Donald Trump continually being exposed that he's saying these things that aren't true. And Hillary Clinton, again, this is what they said, don't come at me. Okay, Hillary Clinton being exposed with her email thing. How is it possible that people are, st- that their, their, their polls have not gone down when all of this information is out there about them and everyone can access it? How is it possible? Here's what, here's what they said. This was so insightful. They said that even though we have more access to more information, more opportunity to expose lies and, and find the truth, the reality is that we are inbred in our information intake. It means that we only listen to the things that we want to hear. So Democrats only listen to Democrat radio, and Republicans only listen to angry Republican radio, right? They're both angry. Everyone's angry, okay? Especially, yeah, anyway. Um, <laughs> you know, if you're, if you're conservative, uh, sort of like reformed Christianity, you listen to yours, conservative reformed, John MacArthur and R.C. Sproul, Keep everyone else away from me. And then if you're like Pentecostal, you're like, oh man, uh, Bethel, I listen to them. And I listen to, you know, whoever, whatever, Jack Hayford. And those are my guys and I listen to them. And you become inbred in the way that you think about truth. You don't get challenged anymore. Isn't that funny that we live in a time where we have more access to more information than ever, but yet we don't ever get outside of our bubbles. Even Google. Google knows what you look up and then they give you results based off of what you look up. Like, Google knows I'm a Christian. 
They're like trying to sell me Christian stuff all the time. They know I'm a runner. They're like putting running shoe ads every single time. I'm like, man, I can't get away from it, you know? It's so funny. I say all that to say this. We have to be anchored to something because if your heart is wicked, which it is, okay, then you will surround yourself with the truth that you want to hear. This is why our culture loves relativism. Because you say, this is what I want to believe. So I'm going to surround myself with people that think like I think and talk like I talk. And I'm going to read articles that people uh, build up what I believe in. And you could do the same thing in Christianity. You could do the same thing in any aspect of anything. But this is steadfast and movable, okay? This is our anchor as Christians. This does not move. It has not changed. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever in his truth stands and it is not conformed to the whims of our world, okay? That's why this matters. You have to get this into you. Get into this and get it into you. Get into the word and get God's word into you because you will not naturally think like him otherwise. And when he comes, I want to be like him. I want to think like him. I want to feel like him. I want to know him. And we do that by reading the story, not about us, but about him. It's not basic instructions before leaving earth. I'm sorry. It's the redemptive story of God and how he is for himself and his glory, and we get to be a part of that. That's the Bible. It's his story. It's about him. And we don't think that way naturally. And it takes a lot of intentionality and discipline. Ephesians 5, Paul pleads with the husbands. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the word. It's cleansing. We don't think like Jesus naturally. We need to be cleansed in our minds daily by the washing of the water of the word. We need to be rooted and grounded with roots that sink deep into the scriptures so that we are not tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, right? Ephesians 4.22, Paul says, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and be renewed by the spirit of your minds, Right? It happens in here, and the only way to change that is through the word of God, amen? Okay, number three. Third reason, number one was, I already forgot, truth is important, truth matters. Number two, our minds are falling. Number three, and this is a long one if you're taking notes, knowing, hearing, and agreeing with the truth, okay, is entirely different than discovering, owning, and living the truth. Let me say that again. This is an intentional sentence. Knowing, hearing, and agreeing with the truth is completely different than discovering, owning, and living the truth. And let me, let me explain what I mean by that, okay? When I prayed for you guys when I was doing this teaching, um, I was thinking, okay, what, what is it, Lord, that you might want to say prophetically about, about this, about reading the Bible and, what, and the importance of it and, and thinking about our church. And I, and I think here's the reality. I think most of us in here, including me, and most of us in here um, are not suffering from complete biblical liter- illiteracy. I think most of us have a, a decent idea of, um, oh my, uh, sorry, uh, most of us have a decent idea of the Bible and, and how it's laid out and, and, th- and things like that, right? I think the, the reality is, though, for most of us, including myself, is that we know the truth, we agree with the truth, we nod our heads on Sunday when the truth is said, but we don't own the truth. We haven't got in and found it for ourselves. Let me explain what I mean by that. We know cliches. We know biblical principles. We've heard teachings on the Trinity. We've heard teachings on the wrath of God, the love of God, the grace of God. We've heard teachings on how to read the Bible. We've heard teachings on prayer. We've, we, we listen to it. We, we get it. But we haven't got into it for ourselves. Here's, here's some examples. So a few things in my life, for instance. Uh, I always knew that I was supposed to value God. That's like Christianity 101, right? 
God's important. I knew that even before I was a Christian. I was taught that. I mean, I heard that in sermons. God's important. But something happened when I picked up my Bible and began to labor in the Word and spend time digging and chewing and assimilating and and being with God in his word, something happened. Now I didn't just know I'm supposed to be with God. I found scriptures that illuminated that in a whole new way. I found this story that Jesus says that, that the kingdom of heaven is like this man, right, who's poor and, and, and didn't have much to his name, maybe a mud hut and a plow or whatever, and he goes into another man's field and begins to plow, and he finds a treasure that's more valuable than anything he'd ever owned in his entire life, 100,000 times more valuable than all of his belongings. And he runs home and he sells everything he has so that he can buy this field and obtain this treasure because he doesn't care about anything other than that treasure. And I read that with my own eyes, insert it into my heart, and all of a sudden this truth of, oh yeah, God is important, is completely different. No, God is the treasure in the field that I'm gonna sell everything in comparison. And then you read Paul, right, in Philippians when he says, I count everything as dung. I don't need to explain what that is, right? For the sake of knowing Christ, it's nothing. So in the beginning, that was just the truth. Yeah, God's important. But when I got into the scriptures myself, those truths became mine. Man, when I read that parable, I'm like, that's my parable. When I hear Paul say that he'd give it up, all of it, for the sake of knowing Christ, that's my verse. I want to own that, right? Do you know what I mean by that? It's different. It's one thing to know it. It's one thing to agree with it. It's another thing to own it, to discover it, to find it for yourself. For example, the Trinity. I always heard all these concepts about the Trinity, right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And I could try to explain it, regurgitate things I'd heard. Oh, it's like an egg, you know? You got the three different parts. And then I said, you know what? I'm going to figure this out for myself. That doesn't mean I didn't use tools to study, but, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get to the heart of this. I start to study the Trinity. And you know what happened? I found John 17, verse 3, where Jesus is praying and having a moment with the Trinity. And I realized that there's been, before creation of man, there's been this community called God. God is a community himself, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, have forever before creation dwelt together in perfect satisfaction, loving and worshiping each other before we were even created. That community was, is just a reflection of God. That when I have my kids and my wife together and we're a family, that's an echo, a reflection of God who is a community in and of himself. That church is a reflection of the community of God. So I went from being like, oh yeah, the Trinity is like, I don't know how that works, but I've heard some teachings on it, to being like, no, now I get it. I don't get it, but I get it. You know what I mean? There's a difference, guys, when you get in the word and figure this stuff out. You own it in a way that you never can by just hearing it. You have to get in there. You have to find it. It becomes infinitely more valuable. And even more so than finding it and discovering it, it becomes even more valuable when you believe it. It's one thing to hear it. It's one thing to know it. It's one thing to agree with it. It's one thing to find it. It's another thing to believe it. And I don't just mean like, yeah, I agree with that. No, like you believe it. Like you have seen it change your life. There's a story in the book of Acts interesting story where Philip, who is this missionary, this disciple, this missionary who is, is, is going and, and reaching out to all these Gentile cities, and God tells Philip to take a detour and to go south and to reach out to this eunuch, okay? Uh, basically, this, this man who's been emasculated for the reason of serving uh, the king, okay? Uh, a powerful, a rich eunuch, to go and seek him out. Go catch up with him. So it just so happens that this eunuch from Ethiopia is in his chariot with his group, a man of power, a man of influence, and for some reason, this Gentile, this guy's trying to figure out the scriptures. He's in the book of Isaiah. Couldn't pick a more confusing place, right? And he's like, he's in the backseat of his chariot just trying to figure this out. And here comes Philip, sent by God to come and to encounter this guy. Philip catches up with him. They have this conversation, and Philip says, hey, do you get what you're reading? 
You know what he was reading? He was reading Isaiah 53. If you you want to pick a cool place to start in the Bible, start there. 800 years before Jesus is crucified and you have a perfect picture told like it had already happened, how he was crucified, by his stripes we were healed, his hands were pierced, all this crazy stuff. This is what this eunuch is reading in this chariot. Philip catches up with him and says, hey, do you get what you're reading? He's like, how can I get it? How do I understand this? Have you ever felt like that? I have, for sure. How am I supposed to understand this? So Philip begins to explain it to him. The light bulb goes on, and then something happens. You see, he didn't just get the truth. He didn't just seek the truth. He didn't just pursue it or have it explained to him, but it went one step further, and he believed it. You know how I know? Because in the story, he tells the guy, hey, look, there's some water. Let's go get baptized. I mean, just pull over. I'm not going to wait for the next church service. I'm not going to go to the temple. Just pull this stinking car over, man. I want to get baptized now because I believe this. This is real. This is true. The scriptures were revealed to him, and he believed it, and something happened. He changed, right? And he was never the same. That is the power of when you not only get the word, but you believe it, and you see it, and you exercise God's grace. It is powerful, amen? Okay. Let me try to calm down a little bit, and then we can uh, get into the the practical side. So, now I want to talk about kind of just some hows, okay? How to get into the scriptures. I want to start quickly by, how much time do we have? We're good. Um, we'll start quickly by just going through four quick questions that you can ask yourself when you're reading the scriptures. Okay, we're turning a big corner here. Don't let me lose you. Um, turning a big corner into the practical, into the how. How do we do this? How do we read? How do we study? Here's four questions to ask yourself. If you're taking notes, write these down. This isn't like seminary level exegesis how-to, okay? This is just like Sam's approach, okay? So take it for what it's worth. Um, but this is something my wife and I have used and has been helpful. When you're reading, here's some questions you can ask yourself that may help you to get the meat, the milk, the gold out of the scriptures, okay? Number one, ask yourself, this is important, what is the text saying? Okay, you've heard Jeff say it over and over and over again. Most important principle of interpreting the Bible is context, context, context. It's so true. We have to start by saying, what is this verse saying, okay? Be careful not to overapply things when you don't get what they're actually saying first because you could open up the Bible and find a lot of crazy stuff, okay? And if you don't get the context, you might become a eunuch. You know what I mean? That was too far. Sorry. Um, didn't get any laughs on that one at all. Anyways, um, but there is some crazy, crazy verses. Just saying. Here's one. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You guys have heard that verse before, right? Um, great verse. Fantastic verse. The problem is, is that people put it on mugs and t-shirts, and they don't really realize the context of that verse, okay? Um, so people are like, run into the end zone, and they're like, I'm going to plow over all these guys and get that six point because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, Right? Uh, and then they get creamed and wonder what happened, you know. Um, that verse is not talking about scoring touchdowns. It's not talking about making six figures. It's not talking about making a hole-in-one. It's talking to a church being persecuted, thrown into an arena and eaten by lions so that Caesar and Nero could, could enjoy watching it, okay? This is a verse written to a church that was being murdered, crucified because they were Christians, and the writer of that epistle is saying, look, you can make it. You can get through this because Christ will strengthen you. Not you can go s- score touchdowns so everyone thinks you're awesome, okay? An example, understand the context. Understand what it's saying. Before you get all crazy with application, understand what it's saying. Number two, how does this show me man's need for Jesus? Okay, this one's really easy in the Old Testament. Okay, when you open up Kings and you start reading about some of these guys, you're like, man, we needed a Messiah really bad. I mean, they all blew it. David, do I even have to say anything? Bathsheba murdered her husband. Abraham lied about his wife, said that she was his sister because he was scared. Solomon, 
crazy polygamy. First and second Kings, every chapter, some guy's doing something even stupider, idolatry, constantly sacrificing to idols. Judges, God would have to raise up another judge to fix everything that was screwed up by Israel because they constantly blew it. Okay, read the Old Testament and think to yourself, wow, we needed Jesus really bad because this is what we do without him. <laughs> okay, so second question you can ask yourself, how does this show my need for Jesus? And that, these questions may not work for every verse, but they're helpful. Number three, what is this teaching me about the character and the attributes of God? How does this verse or this story or whatever, how, what does this tell me about God himself? What can I learn about him from that? For an example, Jesus feeds 5,000 when he's been preaching all day and they're hungry and they're tired and they're not gonna be able to get home and make the long journey without some food in their belly. What does that tell you about God? He cares about your belly, okay? He cares about you being hungry and he's sovereign over that and all he has to do is make some bread and some fish and multiply it. He cares, okay? Uh, Old Testament, right? They're carrying the ark back on a cart, the presence of God, it starts to fall off the cart, and I think his name's Jehu, reaches out, tries to stop it, God strikes him dead. You ever read that story? It's crazy. What does that tell us about God? He's holy, and it would be better for the presence of God to fall down in the mud than to touch the sinful, carnal, lust-ridden hands of a man, okay? God is holy. We are not. We need Jesus to, to stand in that gap, okay? When you read verses like that, say, what is this telling me about God? God is to be taken seriously, and he is holy, right? Number four, how might God be speaking to me through this passage? Okay, so that's sort of the application. What, what, what does this mean to me? And I'm not talking about, should I marry that girl? Should I buy this car, okay? Don't try to find that in the scriptures, okay? Try to find, God, how do you want to transform my heart, how do you want to transform my heart? How, how is this verse encouraging me to, to become more like Christ? This is not a Ouija board to increase morality. Okay, flip it open to a verse on fasting. Oh, no, okay, no. This is a book that is to make you more like Jesus, like we talked about last week, that you would grow in grace, that you would decrease, that he would increase. So ask yourself those four questions. What's the text saying? What's the context? How does this show me man's need for Christ, for Jesus? What does this teach me about the character and attributes of God? And lastly, how might God be speaking to me through the story or passage, okay? Everybody got that? Just a few other things, uh, just, just practical. I wanted to give you guys nuts and bolts, so hoping that you'll go home and just tear into your Bibles and really, really get into it. Uh, here, here's a couple of more practical points. Number one, zoom in, okay? Zoom in. In. What I mean by that is, is, is occasionally, more often than not, take a verse and just stay there. You don't have to read three chapters a day. It's good to do that sometimes, as we'll talk about, but stay there. Grab a dictionary. Look up some words. Break down the passage. Think through the phrases in there. Think through the grammatical aspects of it. Cross-reference. Okay, what cross-reference means is like, Go to other verses that might be similar. In your Bible, you probably have a little thing in the middle, maybe on the side, that has cross-references. Those shoot you to other verses that tell you that have similar or commonality uh, with the verse that you're reading, okay? Treasury of Scripture Knowledge is in a fantastic book of cross-references, just entirely cross-references. You can get lost in that. I used to just write cross-references in my Bible all day long. It's so fun. Zoom in. Look up Greek words. Okay, if, if you have a smartphone... Go into your app store and download Logos, L-O-G-O-S, Logos. It's free on your phone. You can, you can look up Greek words in a heartbeat. You can also Google Greek words, which is crazy, okay? Um, you can, there's commentaries that come on that automatically and are free. I would suggest to you guys uh, one of my favorite commentaries that's on the whole Bible in one volume is John MacArthur's commentary. Um, he has a whole set, but he also has one concise. ESV Study Bible would be another good one. Um, those are just some resources to zoom in. Now, parenthetically, number two, zoom out. Okay, you can get lost in the weeds really easy. If you're only looking up Greek words all day, you're going to get really confused. Okay, zoom out. Get the redemptive narrative story that God is weaving throughout all of the scriptures and get that. Understand that. Do both. I heard John Piper have a good, good uh, um, 
idea that he said, you, you know, zoom in in the morning and zoom out at night, right? In the morning, maybe pull out some commentaries, dig into a verse, meditate on it throughout the day, and then at night, just grab Kings and read a chapter. You know, grab Genesis and read a chapter, read a story, read some Psalms. Zoom out, get the whole redemptive story, get the kingdom perspective. Number three, we're almost there. Understand how the Bible is laid out. This is huge. This Bible is intensely confusing if you don't understand how it's laid out. And it, it's kind of laid out poorly. And that wasn't the Holy Spirit's fault. Okay, we won't blame that on him. That was some, some guys uh, that did that. So it's laid out confusing. It's not in chronological order. Okay, and, and when you understand that, it makes it a whole lot easier. You need to understand the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Okay, Old Testament is pointing to Christ and the need for Christ. New Testament is pointing back Look at Jesus. Here's his life. Here's what he did. Here's how the Holy Spirit was poured out at Pentecost and from that point forward. Revelation, here he is coming again. There's a difference between Old and New Testament. There's a difference between books like Joshua and books like Romans. Okay, I'm not going to sit there and dissect one verse of Joshua. Probably not, okay? But I will Romans for sure because they read differently. There's different genres. The Bible is organized by genre. What that means is you have the first five books of the Bible, Pentateuch, okay? That's law, some stories, but mostly a lot of law. Then you, 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 have, you have the poetic books, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes. These are very poetic in nature, okay? Then you have, um, uh, you, you have the prophets, which is a large majority of the Old Testament. That's all pointing forward. Here's what's gonna happen. Some of those prophecies were fulfilled before Christ. Some of them are still coming. Okay? Then you have the history books like Judges and Joshua and Kings and Chronicles and all those kinds of books. It's, it's history. You read it like a story. Okay? And then you get into the New Testament, you have the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Those are the accounts, the different eyewitness accounts of Christ. Okay? Historical. They read like a story. Right? Then you get into Acts is a story too. Then you get into the um, epistles, which were letters. You guys know this. Letters that were written by the apostles to different churches or to specific people, and then Revelation, which is a prophetic book. So it's by genre. Now, I would recommend to you guys, if, if you're confused by all that, pick up a chronological Bible. They sell them. There's some really good ones out there. A chronological Bible will show you basically from the oldest book to the newest book where they actually go in order, and it'll be surprising. Kings and Chronicles happened at the same time. Two different accounts, Northern Kingdom, Southern Kingdom. Um, it's helpful to get that. It might, might help you. I'd also recommend to you, uh, John MacArthur has uh, something called the MacArthur Bible Handbook. And it, it just is a, a quick bird's eye view of each book. I'll just tell you, First Kings, here's the themes, here's the story. Second Kings, here's the themes, here's the story, here's the author. And you can get the redemptive story of God in the Bible, and it's pretty cool. Number four, study together. Okay, this is huge. We, I, don't, I honestly don't think we were designed to be in the corner by ourselves all the time reading on our own. I think it's good to have time on your own. But did you know the early church didn't have their own little pocket scroll that they carried around? Like, they didn't have like their own, you know, apps on their phone. Like if they wanted to study the scriptures, guess what they did? They went to the synagogue, they pulled out the scriptures, and mostly they would discuss it. That's what they would do. And there's something to that. I mean, some of, some, some of the most... Uh, brilliant insights that I've pulled from the scriptures have been from sitting around with my friends and just talking. Like, what does that mean? What is Paul talking about there? What does it mean to grow in grace? What's he saying? Let's dig into that. And, and having discussion and dialogue is huge. So if you're not doing that, grab a friend. Get some coffee in the morning and just say, we're going to read a verse, talk about it. Read a verse, talk about it. Do it with your wife. Do it with your husband. Number five, hear teachings. Be a student. This is the easy one because all you have to do is hit play, Okay or come on Sunday, or come on Wednesday. There's incredible resources out there. If you have podcasts on your phone, do uh, John Piper, R.C. Sproul, Matt Chandler, Albert Muller, Tim Keller. If you want to hear more about those, email me, sam at heritagefellowship.net, or talk to me afterwards. Um, underline, highlight, cross-reference, get pens out. That's something about that just really excites me. Highlighting things, circling words, writing in the margins of my Bible. I just got like the smallest mechanical pencil you can possibly get. I don't remember, it was like .02 or something like that. And the reason I did that is because I want to be able to write notes in my margin really small. And so go get a mechanical pencil. Write in your Bible. <laughs> Sounds stupid, I know. But write in your Bible. It makes it your own when you do that. When you circle it, it makes it your own. There's something about that. Um, study topically. 
pick something that you are confused about and dig in. Look for verses that, that, that all say similar things. And then lastly, and I'm gonna be quiet. Lastly, give it time. We are a fast food culture, are we not? I mean, I went through In-N-Out the other day to order food for 20 people. I had it in five minutes. The gals apologized. She's like, I'm so sorry, it's gonna take about two minutes. I'm like, I ordered 20 hamburgers. I expect it to take an hour. You know what I mean? We live in a fast food culture. This doesn't work like that. No matter how many apps you download, okay, it's gonna take time. And some of it's gonna be confusing, but work through it. Man, you're gonna spend time in Exodus and get, figure out the, uh, the, 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 the um, sacrificial system and then you're gonna go into Hebrews and see how Jesus replaced all that and you're gonna put them together and be like, man, that was cool, but that took a long time to figure that out. Okay, it's gonna take time. Work at it, give it time. Truth unlocks truth. Man, the more you read, the more it unlocks. The more you get, the more you get. The more it makes sense, the more it makes sense, as funny as that sounds. So, here's what we're gonna do. I'm gonna pray, and then I have a quick video, and then we're gonna get out of here. Um, what, we're gonna, what we're gonna play after, after I pray is uh, called Look at the Book. Okay, if you wanna write that down, write it down. It's by John Piper, and this is a ministry that he started. Uh, basically, he's retired now, he's got some time on his hands, so he does this thing where you basically get to see him un un underlining and highlighting and circling and making notes and talking and illustrating how he reads the scriptures. Does that make sense? So you're gonna get to hear him, see how he studies, it's kinda helpful. I wanna inspire you guys via the wisdom of John Piper to get into your words, to study him. So I'm gonna pray, we're gonna watch that, and then I'll come back up and close this out. Father, thank you so much for the word. Thank you for uh, how it transforms our lives. Uh, thank you, God, so much for giving us truth. Lord, that we don't have to flounder on wanting to know why we're here. We know why we're here. You've made it clear. We're here for you. So God, I pray you would inspire our hearts as the lights come off and as this video gets played, God, to, to get into the scriptures. Uh, Lord, we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Woo, dark. First Peter, chapter two, verses one through three. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So Father, I pray that you would grant us not only to taste, but to drink deeply of your goodness, and that by it we would indeed experience the deep fibers of our faith being strengthened, and our love and all of our all the fruits of the Holy Spirit growing in us as we look at this together. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, a hugely important word here and clearly refers back to what was before, right? So uh, means therefore, because of this, whatever came before, because of that, now... Put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. So what went before? Here are the verses that come just before. Namely, you have been born again. And the stress of our newness is that it happened with imperishable seed, abiding word of God that... Um, remains forever. So those three indicators show that being born again through the living and abiding word of God, having been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God, 
that remains forever is that this newness that we have, having been born again, is a newness of durability and hope and unshakable assurance about our future. And that word that caused us to be born again is defined as the good news that was preached to us. Therefore, because you are new, you you have unshakable hope. Therefore, put away which means that the the commands in the Bible to become active. Now you do something here. You put away these bad feelings and these bad practices. The, The commands in the Bible to become active follow and are based upon the work of God to make us new. We were passive here. We're active here. God made us new. And now on the basis of our newness and our hope, he tells us, all right, put away things that don't accord with your newness. And we're going to come back to this verse next time and look at every one of these in detail. So just for now, get that principle that because you are already new, you have been made God's child by new birth, and you have an unshakable hope, be about becoming what you are. Be about bringing your life into conformity to this newness in the new birth by getting rid of all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, all slander. Now, this is what I want to talk about this time, the remainder of this down here, and we'll come back to that next time and show how it relates. Like newborn infants, so now you can see he's still thinking about this new birth up here that he talked about in 122 to 25, like newborn infants. And I don't think he means he's only talking to baby Christians. I think he means that the analogy here is when you're born again, like an infant, do what infants do. They long. This word is desire. Desire for the pure desire, long for the pure spiritual milk. Now, what is that? Well, in the context, I would suggest that it is the Word of God that we saw up here mentioned. We were born again by the living and abiding Word of God, that is the Gospel. So, just as you were brought into being by the Word of God and our infants by virtue of being born by the Word, now long for what it was that brought you into being so by it you may be sustained in life. The very Word that brought us into being uh, sustains us. But I think we can be more specific about what the spiritual milk is because he says here in verse 3, if indeed you have tasted So this taste relates to this longing here. When you long for it and drink it, you taste it. If indeed you have tasted, and this comes from Psalm 34, 8. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So the taste of this milk is the goodness of the Lord. The milk, I think, still is the the word of God. Just as you have been brought into being by and made newborn infants by the word of God, now long for it. If indeed you have tasted and found that the word in the word, the Lord is good. So what marks out a newborn person is that it, anybody can read the word, right? You don't have to be born again to read the word. But if you taste in the word of God, the goodness of the Lord, if you see the Lord and you know his goodness in Jesus Christ, in the gospel that's referred to in verse 25, then that's evidence that you are born Again, and what happens when you taste the milk is that you grow up. You start growing into salvation. Like newborn babes long for the pure spiritual milk that, here's the purpose of drinking and and, uh, eating, you may grow. And the result of growth is that you 
attain unto, you reach, you arrive at salvation, which raises the question, whoa, aren't we saved already? Well, yes, in a sense, we are because we are already born again. And to be born again is to be saved out of your deadness into the newness of standing as a child of God. But here in 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5, by God's power, we are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So you can see that salvation for Peter is a future reality mainly. That's the way he's thinking about it. Or a few verses later in chapter 1 verse 9, we obtain the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. So back to 1 to 3. We are growing toward, toward unto salvation. We're going to arrive into salvation fully, though we certainly are saved right now, and we are being saved as we grow because we've seen that it's God who is keeping us, and we're going to arrive at salvation. So the lesson there is the Christian life is not to be thought of as mechanical or as automatic. It is a organic, dynamic process. We are born, and therefore we eat or drink, and therefore we grow, and therefore we arrive at salvation. Don't ever think that eating and drinking the Word of God and growing by it is optional or marginal in the Christian life. It is as essential as in ordinary life. And this does not undermine our assurance and our confidence, this great unshakable hope that we have here, because God's power is guarding us. We are being guarded by God's power through faith for salvation. Our assurance doesn't lie in the fact that uh, once we believe, we are automatically home free. Our assurance lies in the fact that God keeps his own. God produces the faith that leads to salvation, and he does it because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, and that's what this milk is here. This milk is the mediation to our souls of this kindness and that kindness is what feeds our faith, which grows us up to salvation. And next time, what we want to do is see how all of that results in our ability to put away malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. Right, all right. Was that, was that a little confusing? Or was, was that helpful at all? Yeah. Um, I don't know. I think what I was really hoping that you guys would just see is, is, is what you can do when you just sit and look at one verse and, and just say, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just try to figure out, okay, what does that word mean and what is he pointing back to and what is this pointing forward to? So that's a great resource. If you guys want to look at those, just go to desiringgod.com and you can access all, all those on there. Um, thank you guys for coming out tonight. Uh, Spiritual Discipline Series will continue next week. Um, go get your kids and Lord bless you guys. Thanks for coming out.